Well, this past Thursday, I was at my weekly exchange club meeting, and uh, one of uh, my fellow exchangeites brought a guest, and I know this guest just very, like, minimally through the, the community. And so because we didn't know each other super, super well, we were asking each other questions just to try to get to know each other. She's a 20-something, uh, single, working for a nonprofit in the area. And so we're just kind of, you know, asking each other questions. And I said something about my boys. And she says, oh, do you just have the, the two boys? And I said, well, no, I actually have two daughters who are both in college. And this 20-something's jaw kind of dropped as she just stares at me. And you can see what's going through her head. Like, wait, wait a second. I thought you were like about my age. What, how do you have? So, you know, you can see she's calculating. How is this possible? And I laughed and I said, yeah, I, I kind of get that occasionally. I said, you know, my wife and I, we got married when I was 12 and we had kids at 16. <laughs> and she believed me. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm kidding. So I, I told her the truth. I said, I'm, I'm 45. I, uh, you know, have four kids. I got married when I was 21. Our first kid was born when I was 24. And she didn't believe that. She thought I was still pulling her leg. And the other guys around the breakfast table were like, no, he's telling the truth. He's an old guy, really. He, he's, he's 45. Now, I don't tell the story to brag that I look a lot younger than I am. To be honest, I actually wish I kind of looked closer to my age. Maybe people would take me slightly more seriously. But I, I, uh, I tell the story because I think we've all done something very similar, where we meet someone and we begin to make some assessments, some judgments about them. And it turns out that we're wrong. Yeah, have you ever like started a new job and you, you, you go to work and your, your new boss is taking you around, introducing you to everybody, and you end up meeting this person that in your head you're thinking, oh, this must be like the receptionist or, you know, they're like, you know, kind of at the beginning of their, their career here. Maybe it's the janitor. And then it turns out that they're actually the boss of your boss. Or, or maybe you're, you look at your neighbor and your neighbor is just always well dressed, has glasses, seems really articulate. And you're just thinking like, at least a master's degree, if not a doctorate, maybe two or three doctorates. Like the dude just seems incredibly smart. Turns out he didn't even finish high school. Or, or maybe you, you know, see this teenage kid and he, uh, you know, takes photographs for the newspaper and he just seems a little awkward. And then it turns out that he can sling webs out of his wrist and climb walls. I think we've all done it where we assume one thing about someone, but the reality about them is different. Right now, the city of St. Louis is rife with uh, critical conversation, very contentious, about a case of mistaken identity. Uh, this past week, three police officers were arrested in uh, allegations of beating a protester at a, a, a rally or protest from a year ago. Uh, over a year ago, there was a white police officer in St. Louis who had shot and killed a, a black man by the name of Anthony Smith. And when the jury heard all the evidence, they acquitted the, the white police officer. And so many in the community were just up in arms. This didn't seem like justice for Anthony. And so they took to the streets. And so the police, you know, mobilized to help protect people to make sure no damage was being done in these protests. But allegedly, these three officers began to text one another looking forward to the protest. Because they said that because they were being put on SWAT detail, they'd be wearing masks. And once the sun went down, no one would be able to tell them apart. And apparently one of them texted one of the others and goes, it's going to be so much fun beating the blank out of those blanks when they can't tell us apart. So you wonder how in the world these three guys ended up getting arrested if no one could tell them apart. Well, it turns out that the black man that they thought was a protester was actually an undercover cop. And he knew who they were. And the whole thing got reported. 
yeah, it, it, it's devastating. It, all because of an error of mistaken identity. Throughout history, large swaths of humanity have made the exact same mistake about Jesus. They have assumed one thing about him when in another, it's a very different reality. That many people, they look at Jesus and they think that he was just another human. That is a huge error of mistaken identity. Others, though, they, they elevate Jesus. They, they see him as a wise sage, a great teacher, maybe a great prophet. Some even might say he was the greatest human to have ever lived on earth. And yet that, too, as honoring as it sounds, is an error of mistaken identity. You know, we really don't have an excuse to mistake who Jesus is and was. Because 700 years before he was even born, the prophet Isaiah very clearly stated who Jesus would be. And that's what our Advent series is about. We're studying the four names that, that Isaiah gives to Jesus in Isaiah 9-6. Let me read that for you. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Last week, as we began this Advent series, we looked at that idea as Jesus as a wonderful counselor, which means this week we come to that second name, Mighty God. But if you're like me, you hear this verse every Christmas. Maybe you grew up in church and you, you heard this verse. And so what happens is you've got a little bit of a callous upon it, and it doesn't quite penetrate your heart and mind the same way as someone hearing it fresh for the first time. Because if you stop and think about it, the people that Isaiah would have been writing to, they would have been hearing this. And when they hear a child is born, a son is given, they're going to start thinking a human. And they're going to look at this and think this human, this is about a king because the government is put upon his shoulder. But now as you start looking at it and you think, well, wait, a human king, how can a human be God? And that's when you start looking at it thinking, that's ludicrous. A human can't be God. But it turns out that Isaiah's audience wouldn't have balked at this a bit. Not because they're used to the idea of, oh yeah, God is a, a human. No, it turns out that many kings took on names. Either it was given to them or they adopted it when they took up upon the throne. And they gave themselves a name that honored their God. For instance, when Moses goes to Egypt and he approaches the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh just simply was the king of Egypt. That Pharaoh's name was Ramesses. Ramesses' name honored the god Ra. Or you go into the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is the king that we learn about. His name honored Nebu. Or even the Israelites would give their children names that would honor God. God was known as Jehovah. So you have some guys with like the name of Jehoiakim. Or God was also known as El, like El Shaddai, El Elyon, this, this El name. So that's why you have like Daniel or Elijah. And, and so for a king a human king, to have a name pointing to mighty God, it really wouldn't be that strange. What they just didn't realize was this wasn't just a name to point to God. It was a name saying he was God. And when you start realizing that Jesus fulfills this prophecy perfectly, and he doesn't just bear a name that helps point us to God, but that actually gives us a name that shows us he was God it changes the way we relate to him. I don't want you falling into the same mistake, an error of mistaken identity, where we reduce Jesus to just another human, or as a wise teacher, or even maybe a great prophet. 
that we would actually see Jesus for who he truly is, that we would see him as God. And when we do, it totally changes the way we relate to him. So Heavenly Father, as we get ready to jump into the scriptures and look at this idea of Jesus as God, I pray that you would be our teacher today, that you would penetrate our hearts. This is a key core doctrine of, of Christianity. Uh, if, if we get this wrong, we get it all wrong. And so, Father, I pray you'd help us to understand this cornerstone theological idea of, of Jesus as God in the flesh. Father, as you open our eyes and remind some of us yet again the, this true reality of, of Christ, that for many of us, it would help us today to, to know how to approach you, how to relate to you, and it would actually build our confidence in you. And by doing so, you make this one of the best Christmases we've ever had. And so, Lord, would you lead us now? In your son's name we pray. Amen. If you brought a Bible with you today, go ahead and open it up now to Mark chapter 4. Yes, our series is out of Isaiah 9, but today we're going to go to Mark chapter 4. Uh, as I already said, we're in the series called A Son is Given. Isaiah 9, 6 is that key passage as we're working through those four names given to Jesus 700 years before he arrived. And I realize that it's quite a mind-boggling assertion to say that Jesus, a man, he was fully human. I mean, you can see him in the scriptures eating food, being tired. We're actually going to see that today. He was fully human, and yet he was also fully God. And if we realize that truth, it really does change the way we interact with him. So what I want to do today is rather than preach more through Isaiah 9, I want to go to a passage that gives us a glimpse of Jesus as the mighty God. And as we see Jesus as the mighty God, we're going to watch the disciples and see the way that they then react to him as they begin to understand who he is and I think that's going to give us an idea of how we too should react and relate to Jesus, the mighty God. So let me read Mark chapter 4, and we're going to read 35 to the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 4, start in verse 35 with me. On that day when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? These 12 disciples, I think this is early in their relationship with Jesus. Uh, part of what makes me think that is this is taking place in Mark 4, not like in Mark chapter 12. Now, I, I will put a little disclaimer on that. The, the uh, gospel writers, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's known as the synoptic gospels, the first three gospels, they didn't always necessarily write in a chronological order. Sometimes they would group things together. Like you want a bunch of Jesus' parables together. Here in the book of Mark, you often see Jesus do one thing for the, the uh, Jews, and then he crosses to the other side of the lake and does something for Samaritans or, or, or Gentiles. And, you know, so sometimes what they do is thematically. But here in Mark, the way he's structuring it, 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 it 
it seems really, really rushed. Some people believe that Mark went to interview Peter, and Peter, this is shortly before Peter ends up being killed. And you see the speed with which Mark is writing, because they think there may not be much time. So Mark's wanting to get everything he can from Peter. So you see, things just are moving along pretty quickly. And, And so what we see is Jesus doesn't have disciples yet until chapter three, but he's already doing ministry in chapters one and two. In chapter two, we see him heal a paralytic. In chapter three, we see him heal a man with a, a withered hand. And because of these things, people are starting to come around. I mean, they didn't, they couldn't go to the movies. They, they, they didn't go to big sporting events. They, they would go and hear guys like Jesus. And so he's attracting a crowd. And as he attracts a crowd, he starts to teach. And people are now really intrigued because he doesn't teach like the other rabbis. He teaches like someone who has authority. So people are drawn to Jesus. And as these people are drawn to Jesus, Jesus starts saying, you know what? I want you to follow me. And I want you to follow me. And I want you. And he starts handpicking these 12 disciples. And so I think this is early in their relationship with Jesus. Like, I think many of them, they know he's not just another human. The way he teaches, the miracles he's done, the things they've already heard. So they know this is someone. I think many of them think he's a great prophet from God. I think some of them even think he's the Messiah. And in many of the Jewish minds at that time, the Messiah was going to be this great human king who would come down, overthrow the Roman government, free Israel, set up Israel as a, a, a superpower, and would rule on the throne of David and, and their ancestors from here on out. And that's what they were longing for, was this Messiah to come. And they're starting to think, is Jesus the Messiah? But while they think Jesus is from God, I don't think it had even entered their mind that he was God until this moment. Because when they wake Jesus and he stands up and he says, peace, be still. And immediately the storm stops. These good Jewish boys would know Psalm 107, 29, which says, let me read it here. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. As they think about that verse, they realize that's speaking about God. And yet they watched this man do what only God can do. I think this is their first glimpse of Jesus as truly being God in the flesh. So what I want to do is I want to look at, see how they react both in this story and then after. Because I think it's going to help us understand how we too are to relate to Jesus as the mighty God. So the first thing that we see is we see that they fear him. The disciples fear him. Join me over in uh, chapter 4 there. Go down to verse 37. And a great wind storm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? In other words, they are having great fear. Like, they, they are so afraid. They think this is it. You've got to keep in mind that some of these disciples, they're fishermen. Like, they're used to boats. They're used to water. And they would see storms pop up. And I, I, I love that part there in the, the, chat, the verse right before it. It talks about all these other boats that are around. Like, if you ever wonder, like, is this all just kind of made up in the Bible? That kind of a verse makes you realize, no, this isn't made up. Like, this is an eyewitness account. Like, there's no purpose to mention these other boats. But I think what happened is Jesus has just got done teaching, doing some miracles. I mean, if you, you read uh, prior, it's all these parables and the people are really intrigued. And Jesus gets in the boat, start heading to the other side. And they're like, hey, let's go with him. Let's hang out with this guy. Let's learn more. Maybe we can get some things. 
But all of a sudden, the storm picks up. And I think a bunch of the boats are like, oh, no, we're not doing it. And they turn back. But because Jesus said, let's go to the other side, and he's now asleep, the disciples are like, all right, I guess we'll, we'll keep going. Besides, we're fishermen. We know how to handle a boat. We know how to handle these sort of storms. Let's go. And they're out in the middle of the lake. And it's getting so bad that waves are now piling in. And these guys, these experienced sailormen in a sense, are now afraid for their life. They have fear. That's why they wake Jesus. Like, how can he sleep in the middle of this? Like, at least wake up and bail. You know, you're from God. You know, start praying. You know, maybe we've seen you do some miracles. Maybe you could do something here. They're, They're scared. Well, sure enough, verse 39, Jesus stands up. It says, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. You'd think at this moment, the disciples would go, oh, wow, thank you, Jesus. Oh, that, that was close. I, I, I really thought this was the end. But that's not the reaction. The reaction is not relief. The reaction is down in verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? When they get their first glimpse of Jesus as God, their first reaction is fear. Now, that's not a comfortable subject for us to talk about. We, we don't like talking about the idea of fearing God. We, we really want a warm, fuzzy God. That's why we're drawn to, to passages like in 1 John chapter 4, where it says that God is love. And that's true. God is love. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But sometimes what we do is we reduce God to just this really super awesome dude that we can just relate to, and he loves us so lavishly, and we kind of forget that he created the entire universe. That I can't even get my own kids to obey on my first command. And yet he can get a storm to stop with just a word. Like that is power. And sometimes I don't think we think about that power. And so we don't have this holy fear of God. And yet if we really truly understand who Jesus is, I think we would have just a little more fear. Now, I don't believe that it's the type of fear that causes us to run away. I think it's actually the type of fear that draws us to him. Because if you've ever read the Harry Potter series, the the bad guy in the story is Voldemort. You see these people drawn to him because of his power. He's one of the most powerful wizards. And yet they are scared of him because they don't trust him. But we see the exact opposite in the disciples. That while there is fear, we start seeing them express Trust. And that's the second thing I think that we should do. That if Jesus is the mighty God, we should trust him. We should trust him. If you look there in this story here in the the boat, you notice that I I don't think they fully trust Jesus. It's not that they distrust him, but it's kind of like they're waking him up like, don't you care? Like if they really understood who Jesus was, they, they wouldn't be panicking. But yet they don't really know him. So therefore they don't fully trust him. In fact, Jesus points it out to him over there in verse 40. Mark 4.40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In other words, don't you trust me? When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he created them in his image, which means that God shared some of his attributes with humanity. Uh, For instance, we've already mentioned how God is love. Well, we as humans, we have this capacity to love. 
Now, it's not nearly at the same level as God, but that's what allows us to enter into marriage, to, to, to love our kids, to build relationships with one another. We have this capacity to love. Another attribute that God shared with us is this desire for justice. You know, when someone does wrong against us, oftentimes we want things to be put right, or we see great evil done to someone else. We, we want to see justice brought for them. That's another attribute we share with God. I could go on and on. There's numerous attributes that God shared with us, but there are some attributes that he did not share with us. Not because he's not generous. It's simply because they are the things that separate him and truly make him God. And so because there's only one God, we can't have it. Some of the most famous, immutable, the unshareable uh, characteristics of God are what we would known as the three omnis. Omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. In other words, God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he's, what's the other way? All-present, right? So, so God possesses this. But what happens is when we don't trust God, it means we've reduced one of the omnis. For, for instance, you might see God as being all-present, so therefore he's with you. Maybe you even see him as all-powerful, but he's not all-knowing. And so you kind of wonder, does God really know what he's doing? Maybe he doesn't. And so therefore you struggle to trust him. Or maybe you see God as all-knowing and you see God as uh, maybe even all-present, but he's not all-powerful. And so therefore he knows what you're going through, but he's not going to be able to get you through it. So why even bother with him anyway? And so you struggle to trust him. Or maybe you see God as all-powerful and he is all-knowing, but he's not all-present. So therefore, he's not with you. He doesn't know what you're going through. So he's off distant, taking care of more and bigger things. And you feel unloved and like you don't matter. And so you would struggle to trust him. But when you start realizing that God is all three, it means even in the toughest of moments, you can truly trust him. If, if you want to, we don't have time today, but if you want a fun exercise, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As you read through the gospels and study the life of Jesus, Look for the attributes that don't just show his humanity, like where he eats and sleeps. Look also for the elements that show his divinity, that reveal the omnis, where you start realizing, oh, Jesus, even when he was fully human, was still fully God. Like he was aware of things going on when he wasn't even there. Like we see great power in him. We see all these things that he does. He really is God. Some of you right now, you feel like you're in the boat. And the storm is raging, and Jesus is asleep in the stern. And you're wondering, does he care that I am perishing? Maybe it's because of your job. Maybe it's because of a relationship. Maybe it's financial issues going on. Maybe there's, there's you know, an addiction or, you know, something from your past. And you've been praying about this. And you're wondering, is he going to ever wake up? In that moment, you're doubting the omnis. You're wondering, is Jesus really all present or is he off sleeping away from me? Is he really all knowing? Is he aware of what's happening with me? Is he really all powerful? Can he stop what's happening to me? What you need to realize is Jesus is the mighty God. And while it's the moment where the waves are crashing in and Jesus is asleep, continue to plead, continue to go to him. We talked about this when we looked at uh, the, our acts of prayer service and this idea of supplication. Be persistent in prayer. You keep coming, you keep coming, you keep coming. Because Jesus does know you, he does love you, and he can handle it. And so you keep turning to him and you trust him to handle it in his way, in his time. So if Jesus is the mighty God, we need to fear him, but we also need to trust him.
And then there's a third thing. We need to love him. We need to love him. These uh, disciples of Jesus, they being good you know, Jewish boys would have gone through school up to a certain point, and then many of them would have gone on to you know, study with their, their parents the, the, a certain trade. And so that's why we see many of them as uh, fishermen. Uh, you know, we know Jesus was a carpenter. You know, one of his disciples was a tax collector. None of them had really gone on to become rabbis except for Jesus. But that's in a sense what he was calling them to do. So, so they, they would have studied the scripture up to a certain point. Well, most of Jewish schooling was studying the Torah. We would call that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They called it the Torah. It just simply meant law. And by studying the law, they believed that that helped them as Jews understand what it means to follow God. Like he gave us these rules, these laws, put them in place so that we'd understand how to relate to him, how to relate with one another, how to just relate in the world and life. And so they would follow these 613 laws. One of those laws, which Jesus later pulls out as being the greatest commandment, is found in Deuteronomy 6, where God says to Moses, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord. I am one. And you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And Jesus pulls this out for people. And, and when, they would, when he would have said it, everyone would have gone, oh yeah, we, we know that. They, they would have already had that memorized. And so they know that God is calling them to love him. And yet, if you're just going to live in fear and run away from him, that, that's not love. See, the reason that, that we can come to him is, yeah, he may not be, um, well, as a story from uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, the, many of you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or maybe you saw the film. There's a, a scene where the Pevensey children get into um, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's uh, home, their, their dam. And as they're sitting there having supper, they're learning all about Narnia. Because Mr. Beaver is convinced that the Pevensey children are the, the answer to a prophecy and so he's so excited, and the Pavinci kids are like, this is weird. And Mr. Beaver mentions Aslan. And C.S. Lewis writes that something stirs within the hearts of the Pavinci kids. And Lucy speaks up and says, is Aslan a man? And he's like, no, Aslan's not a man. Aslan's a lion. He's the king. And that leads Susan to ask, well, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver kind of goes on and on. And then all of a sudden, uh, Lucy speaks up and says, so is he not safe? And Mr. Beaver says, of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. That is why we don't see Jesus and run away. We see Jesus and we run to him because he first loved us because he's good. We, we see this in, the, in a story in John chapter 21. It's a story about Peter after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas and ends up getting arrested and put on trial and then condemned and ends up dying that next morning, Peter at that supper with Jesus says, I will stand with you through everything. And Jesus basically says, you know, what, Peter, actually by the end of tonight, you're going to deny it that you even known me three times. Peter's like, no, I would never do that. I love you. And yet sure enough, by the next morning, Peter has denied that he even knows Jesus three times. Peter thinks he's totally failed as a disciple of Jesus. So even though Jesus, the one he loves, dies and then is resurrected, Peter's excited about the resurrection, and yet he feels like he's absolutely failed as a disciple. I mean, he, 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 we fire football coaches for far less than what Peter did to Jesus. And so he thinks he's done. He quits. And he goes back to the only thing he knows, fishing. And in John 21, we see... Peter and a few of the guys out in a boat fishing. 
And it's, it's not been a good night of fishing. The sun is starting to rise. They haven't caught much. And, and because it's still a little dark, there, this, there's this man on the shore that they can't quite see, and it's Jesus. And he, Jesus calls out, hey, have you guys caught anything? And they're call, they call back, no, not really. He's like, hey, throw your net over the other side. And I'm sure the, the disciples in the boat are thinking, like, you got to be kidding me. Like, we grew up as fishermen. We know how to fish. You know, it, it, it's time to come in. But you know what? Hey, we're still out here. Let, let's just do it. Let's just humor the guys. So they drop the net. All of a sudden, as they start pulling it up, it is teeming with fish, almost sinks their boat. And in that moment, Peter realizes the man on the shore is Jesus. And you got to remember, Peter just denied just a few weeks prior that he even knew Jesus. And now Jesus shows up. Like if anyone should have fear and want to hide under the stinky, smelly, wet fish, it'd be Peter. Thinking like, oh no, I saw Jesus calm a storm. I saw him raise the dead. He's incredibly powerful and he might be mad at me. But that's not what Peter does. Peter, the one who denied he knew Jesus three times, grabs his cloak, jumps in the water and swims to shore. He loves Jesus. And we see that evidence that after that breakfast, Peter and Jesus go for a little walk down the beach. And remember, Peter denied Jesus three times, so Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter replies each time, yes, you know I do. You see, Jesus may be all-powerful, and we need to be reminded of that, but he's also good. He knows us. He loves us. He's not safe, but he's good. And because he first loved us, we can love him. So we are to fear him. We are to trust him. We are to love him. And I think all of those then lead us to the last and final thing, and that is we are to worship him. We are to worship him. The uh, scriptures are incredibly clear. Uh, we are to worship God only. We screw this up all the time, though. I mean, people in our culture, we worship, you know, pop stars. We worship athletes. We worship movie stars. We, we worship people in our own lives. You know, if you've ever been single and attracted to someone else, like your mind is always thinking about them. You're ascribing all sorts of worth to them. You are, in a sense, worshiping them. And yet the scriptures make it clear that the one who should preoccupy first place in our heart, who should draw out the most affections in us, is God. When we read the scriptures, we see people when they go to worship humans, are told not to. But when they go to worship Jesus, it's allowed. For instance, Peter, the one we just talked about in Acts chapter 10, he ends up being told by God, hey, head to this Roman centurion's house. His name is Cornelius, and you're going to tell him about me. When Peter walks in, Cornelius wants to fall on the ground and worship Peter. And Peter's like, dude, get up. No, I, I'm just another human. I, I'm, I'm just the same as you. I'm here to tell you about Jesus. Or when an angel shows up, people go to worship the angel. The angel's like, whoa, stop, uh, time out. Uh-uh, worship God only. But when Jesus is there and people worship him, Jesus doesn't stop them. In fact, back in Matthew chapter eight, uh, 28, if you want, you can flip back just a few pages. Matthew 28, many of us know verses 18 through 20, which talks about, you know, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and baptize. And, and, and many of you in this room, you know that passage. But right before it, notice what happens. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. If you are someone who struggles with doubts, I hope that encourages you. They're right there, standing in front of the risen Jesus. Some are still doubting. I mean, because... 
people don't rise from the dead. They're wondering, is this a ghost? But yet they're starting to figure it out that he's God. And that's why many of them, they fall down on their knees and they worship him. They ascribe worth to him. And when we go into the book of Revelation, we see that when Jesus shows up on the scene, the elders around the throne and all these beings and creatures of heaven, just like they bow down and worship God, they bow down and worship Jesus because Jesus is God. And when we really start to understand that, we not only see how powerful he is and and fear him, we not only see that he possesses all of the attributes of God so we can trust him, we not only see that he loves us so therefore we can love him, we then see him for who he is and we can't help but worship him. And that's what we want to do right now. We want to create a space for us to worship. As we get ready to partake of communion together as one church family, uh, Tim Corcoran, one of our elders, is going to come and lead us today. As, as we pass those elements, I'm going to encourage you to do one of those four things. Some of you in this room, you need to be reminded that Jesus isn't just a superhero, another human. He is God. And you need that reminder that we are to fear him. May you be filled with awe at the idea of who Jesus is and what he is capable of. Some of you in this room, you're really struggling to trust. You're wondering, is Jesus asleep in the boat as I'm in the middle of the storm? And as these elements are passed out, may you just express your trust. God, help me to trust you, to realize you really are all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. Some of you, you just need to express your love. If you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, I want you to realize that Jesus' love was displayed for you through the cross. Your sin deserved death. That's the punishment for sin. And every human is born a sinner. And yet Jesus went to a cross to take the punishment for us so that our sin would be forgiven. We are now set free spiritually from it and we can enter into a relationship with God because God loves us. And because God loves us, may you today be like Peter. And now that you've seen Jesus as the mighty God, would you just run to him in prayer? Would you come to him? Would you love him? Would you give your life to follow him? And then some of you, you just need to worship. Yeah, you love God. You you trust him. You, You might even have an accurate picture of him, but you've not been letting your heart exalt in him. Your heart's been caught up with everything else going on. And today, you just need to take a moment through these elements, through the song, and in prayer, just to worship Jesus because he is the mighty God. So Heavenly Father, as we get ready to partake of these elements together, I pray that you'd help us today to just continue to get this clearer picture of you, Jesus, to see you as God. Help us to see how powerful you are. Help us to uh, uh, just get, get a glimpse of, of how much you love us. Uh, help us to just see how, how amazing you truly are. And would you lead us right now as we worship you through song, through prayer, through the elements. May we really see that we can trust you, we can love you, we can fear you, because you are amazing. You are the mighty God. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.